0: So welcome to another T Two Hubcast with me, Martin Johnson, Dave Pendleton, and Spencer Locker. The three of us. First time ever we've got three of us in the podcast room recording a podcast, or should we say Hubcast?
1: Yeah, we we should. should.
0: We should keep the branding, (laughs) right? We should say Hubcast. Now this is one I've been excited about, and it's a new concept. But what (laughs) we posted this morning on LinkedIn was. Ask us any question you like on leadership or sales, and we will record an off-the-cub, off the cuff or cub, off the cuff podcast, and we will answer those questions. So we didn't know what questions we were going to get. We've had some questions. We've got five that we're going to answer on this podcast. Um we'll have fun with it, I'm sure, gents. You two are on the other end of the table. Very Cozy, on the same microphone, let's say. You're loving it, aren't you? The personal space.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) So we're going to roll with it. I'll ask the questions and let's debate them. Is that all right? Sure. Let's go. Let's go for it. So first question was from Lee Green, who is the people director at HBP Systems, right? And Lee says, for those leaders stroke managers with little people management experience, I'd love to hear a discussion around how they could best balance the management side of their role versus the operational side. Is it possible? I think what Lee's asking is Is it possible to give an equal amount of time and balance the people skills and the team side of the management role, as well as your job and execution? Because, uh, as we know, gentlemen, a lot of people become consumed by the getting stuff done and the execution side. So first thoughts, is it possible? Do we see it happening more often than not? Or is it still one of those areas that managers have to consciously spend some or dedicate some time to? Dave, first
2: thoughts. Um, I think the answer absolutely is yes, yes. Uh, new leaders, uh, managers, and so forth should be dedicating time to their teams. Uh, and you're absolutely right. We do see uh, a huge amount of leaders um, engaged in much more operational, or probably a better term you used is getting stuff done. Yeah. Because, again, from our experience, you know, speaking with leaders on a daily basis, many people are, are literally chasing their backside. Mm. They're not even necessarily engaged in, in important or urgent stuff. They're just engaged in stuff. Yeah. And they become that octopus on roller
0: skates that we talk about, every direction but forwards. Correct. Because you're being a reactive leader rather than a proactive leader. And, and in Lee's question, he says, um, you know, how – How can they balance this better? Well, one of them, one of the simple, obvious ways is is time management and prioritization. Great leaders and people who tend to be productive that I observe use their outlook or their calendar incredibly well. It's almost their number one go-to, their Bible, right? They operate on a daily basis, and they're very strict with it, and they stick to it. Um, And another one for leaders out there, might be controversial, but drive your, take ownership of your own calendar. And what I mean by that is there's many PAs and many, uh, uh, you know, leaders who have other people contributing towards and managing their diary for them, and they're not in full control, which means you turn up into the office in the morning, right? And all of a sudden you've got a conference call that you know nothing about, or that's dropped in the day before. That's when you start to become the octopus on roller skates, right? So yes, I would say for me, diarization of, of planning the times, the one-to-one times with your teams, your reviews, your coaching sessions, whatever it might be, is incredibly important. It has to be a conscious effort, a conscious decision. Spence, see, I, I, here I've, he goes. He's going to spoil it.
1: I am. I am. <laughs> I, I take this. I take this question from a different perspective go, to you guys. Go for it, Spence. What I'm seeing is, let, let's say, where from from my understanding of the question is, uh, when you have a leader that is focused on process. And delivery, and and yeah, the 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 ins and outs of whatever company that company produces or whatever. If he's focused on the process, if he's focused on the well, this needs doing, that needs doing, and not focusing at all on the personal or the people aspect of the business. <laughs> Um, then they're only seeing half the half the deal, really. I mean, if they can't appreciate that, you know what? People need to feel appreciated. People need to feel wanted. People need a little bit of acknowledgement, possibly. People are different, but you know what? We pay money. They do the job. Well, I don't need to. I don't need to involve myself in people any more than that. Why should I? We've worked with companies, haven't we? We've delivered training with some companies we have actually listened to our training and gone, great, thanks for that, and then not applied it and then wondered why the company's not progressing or de- developing or or anything like that because they haven't actually applied that people knowledge. They've still reverted to type. It's like um, there's... We're delivering information, and they are not receptive to that information. So they're not interested in the people. They're just interested in doing the job. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it's sort of what we were saying, isn't it, yeah. in terms of if you become consumed too
0: much on the what you need to get done, then it's easy to forget. Now, the last mm. point I'm going to make on this because I want to get through five questions mm. is this, right? And this this is my firm standpoint on it, on, on the question, right? Clever leaders, smart people. Clever leaders and smart people understand that if you invest time in your people Mm. and therefore elevate their skill set and their ability to a level where they can become autonomous and function, then you you can step out of execution. You shouldn't be involved in the execution as a leader or manager, right? But what leaders and managers do is they become control freaks. They become... They, be, they, they don't believe their people can do it to the standard they can. So their, their resolution is, get out the way, I'll just bloody do it. But then they're setting themselves up for a fall because they become operationally consumed. If managers and leaders can just understand that actually by investing in our people so they become you know, efficient and of a standard and skill set so they can execute, then guess what? You don't have to be involved in execution any longer. You can spend a hundred percent of your time managing people and culture and strategy and all the things that we should be doing at high level. So, you know, that's my challenge to leaders and managers listening to this. If you be if you are operationally consumed, you've got to look at yourself right? Are you empowering? Are you developing? Are you hiring correctly? Are you doing the things that would allow you to ultimately step away completely from the execution piece? Dave, final thought on this question before we move on.
2: Yeah, I absolutely wanted to to just mention another one of those um, really key parts of this, uh, and it links perfectly to what you just said, is that uh, we just recently worked with uh, 20 senior leaders who pretty much run an entire organisation. And i out of the feedback from the sessions that we ran, 50% of those guys said that they have have very uh, large difficulties and challenges around delegation. Yeah. Which links into exactly what you just said. Yes. People find it very difficult delegating tasks, not necessarily because the people um, who they want to delegate to are deemed not competent or incapable, because they themselves have got motivators around perfection and detail. So they themselves have to have all the um, tasks completed themselves, which creates chaos in their day, which creates chaos with leadership uh, and and engrosses them pretty much 100% of the time in organisational stuff.
0: Yeah, and and some of the reasons, Dave, are absolutely right, but there's also an extra motivator in there, which is control. Some of them, Mm -hmm. it's not even about the quality or the – it's just I need to be in control. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, I'm, I'm one of those leaders, right, and I and you both probably no. smiling at <laughs> No, <laughs> I'm one of those ears. But 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 because of the self-awareness we do, I understand that if I try to be involved in everything and control everything, then I'm setting myself up for a fall. Whereas when I absolutely step back, like I do, and you two take the lead on most things, it frees me up and you know to do the other things that I need to be doing, right? But I've got motivators that want that lend itself for me to want to be involved in everything right all the time and it's not it's not feasible so look it's bullshit leaders get over it right when you say yes but i don't have the team members or the capability to to do these things so i've got to be involved and i've got to do this and it's bullshit right most of the time the problem is them Yes. And my challenge to leaders out there is take a step back, start empowering people, start developing people, and put the inputs in now that will allow you to step away from operational execution process and stuff that you shouldn't be doing, right? 99% of the cases, Dave Spence, are of that. It's bullshit, right? So that's that's the final bit on that question. Hopefully, that's answered Lee Green's question. So <laughs> moving on. Jonathan Cully, sales director at Allied Glass, says, what should you look for when recruiting for a great sales account manager? Now, Dave, as our sales guru here at T2, I've got my own thoughts on this, but instantly I come uh, to the part of his question that says, great sales account manager, and I'm assuming by that he means an account manager who's looking after existing customers or big customers sure. and he's responsible for run rate and renewals, as well as uplift and expansion. Sure. Now, the reason why I set the scene on that is because this question is going to be answered differently from what what should you look for, depending on whether you're looking for a new business hunter or an account manager. Yeah. There's some similarities, but there would also be some differences depending on those roles. So let's go with account. Let's assume Jonathan's talking about account manager, where you've got to balance the relationship side and delivery side with the growth side
2: go for it what's instantly comes to mind from your perspective what should you be looking for uh, for me the one of the key traits i guess of, of somebody who's going to manage accounts and develop accounts um is diligence yeah just the ability to carry out those tasks that traditional salespeople really don't like to do like particularly the white space analysis Looking at accounts, analysing accounts, thinking about where else can we do business within this account, reaching out to those people within those accounts, leveraging relationships within the existing accounts, yeah, um, leveraging internal relationships so that it's not just about me; it's about others and around collaboration. Yeah, um, you know, absolutely. From our experience, uh, salespeople tend to stand alone, work alone, achieve targets on their own. They might well be in a team, but certainly it's a self centered um role usually. Whereas I think an account manager has got to be much broader than that. And diligence for me is one of those very key traits. In account management.
0: Love it. So what you're saying is if, if you're progressing from, say, a just pure hunter, new business role where you're just numbering, you know, loads of numbers, loads of activities, get in, get the deal move. the account management role has to be a bit more diligent than that. It's got someone who's got the ability to look at an account holistically, yeah, absolutely. look at mm-hmm. the different, context, different contacts, different departments, what the business mm-hmm. is focusing on, where they're heading, and start strategically working that account. Correct, yeah. If you want to sort of land and expand or or develop a, a long relationship, yeah. the other thing I'm going to add to that, Dave, I'm going to throw in um, the number one thing I think account managers, sales account managers, i.e., who are going to have long standing relationships with customers, um, and be responsible for not only re- you know driving ongoing revenue but increased revenue, is executive presence. And what I mean by that is an account manager for me needs to hold their own in a room with senior executives and directors of that business. They need to be credible. And I'm not saying that new business hunters and new business salespeople can get away with not having executive presence, right? Mm -hmm. But it's even more imperative for account managers. If you're going to have someone managing your customers who pay you their hard-earned cash, right? You need to have someone in front of them who has credibility and executive presence, it's hard to measure. But you know when you sit in front of somebody, if you're hiring for an account manager role and you look at that person and you either regard them as a bit junior, a bit raw, they've got the potential uh, or uh, you know, a bit rough around the edges or whatever it might be, you're, it, it doesn't constitute executive presence. If you sit in front of that person and think, You have a level of experience, credibility, and the way you conduct yourself, right, comes across in a certain way that I could drop you tomorrow in front of the CEO of our biggest customer. That is what you need as an account manager. Yes, you need all the diligence. You need the other skill sets that come with account management and sales. But the first 10 seconds or the first minute in any meeting, you need to say, you know, You need to ooze credibility, and that's what the great account managers do. And that's probably Dave why we see generally account managers and client directors in organisations being slightly older than maybe the new new business hunters or hunters or the desk based people. It's not an exact science, but as a general rule of thumb, Mm. they have a little bit more experience and gravitas as a result.
2: Yeah, I I think that's. I think it's uh, you you hit on a point there, and, and my second point would be relationship building. Yes, of course, yeah. salespeople have to be good at building relationships, um, you know, and depending on whether you work in a transactional or consultative environment will depend on how long and established those relationships need to be to keep creating the outcomes. However, when we're talking about account management and account development, and I think this maybe ties to your point about generally account managers tend to be a little older. That's because of experience and experience with people and the ability to bend and flex styles and approaches to different people in different accounts and and just build credibility through knowledge, through product and so forth. But just generally with people, being better with people makes a fantastic account manager.
0: Cool. So going to come to you on the next question, next Spence. but just to round this one off for Jonathan, three things I think we've discussed there for hiring a great account manager. they have to be able to straddle and have the skill set on the diligence aspect of the role as much as the people aspect because that's what great account managers do. They carry out white space analysis. They work through a process. They expand within accounts. They do a lot of diligence on the company, where they're heading, who's in the company, who's doing what. They have the diligence side. Number two, they also have executive presence. They have the ability to walk in a room and hold their own at strategic level, high level, uh, from from a body language perspective, from a content perspective, from the way they carry themselves. Uh, and they tend to, therefore, have a little bit more experience and a little bit more credibility. Uh, and finally, ultimately, the, that people side, you know, just as much as the diligence side, they do. They still have to have that social excellence that Dave's talking about, that ability to navigate conversations and build rapport with other people. Cool. Right. I think we've answered that one. So third question, uh, keeping it moving. Spence, I'm going to come to you straight away on this one. Yeah. James Greenwood, good old James, I know James, knew he'd come out with a left-field question. <laughs> he, can't, he can't just, you know, come out with a sensible question, but it's sort of why I love it. Good old him. James
2: kind of set that Yeah,
0: way. he does. All right, James Greenwood is the MD of Strawberry, joint MD of Strawberry. Uh, in six months' time, Martin, or you guys, right, you're the new PM, Prime Minister. The party, regardless of which, is fractured, How do you spend the first five days of being in post? Now, there's a hidden serious question there to James because this is what it's like. It's very creative. It's very apt at the minute with Mm -hmm. politics in this country, right? So can you imagine being the new PM in six months' time after this? debacle that's going on at the minute. Um, but it, how do you spend your first five days being in post? Now, that's obviously got a serious undertone question because leaders often take over troubled teams mm. or organisations and they have to do something pretty quickly. Yeah. So we can relate this. So, Spence, you're the PM,
1: yeah,
0: right, six months' time. The debacle is either ongoing mm. or over, but mm. you've got a completely fractured party.
1: Yeah,
0: What's your first sort of few things you do in the
1: five days? Well, first, thing, first thing's first. Uh, You've got to clarify what your mandate is. So you've got to clarify what your mandate is from shareholders. So your shareholders are your your electorate
0: people of the country. Same as business, right? Yeah. Yeah. So
1: those those are going to give you a mandate. What do you need to achieve? Well, clarify what that is and then find out where these fractures are. Fix the fractures. Uh, Basically... Um, I, I'm along the lines. I think I'm a, a sort of similar sort of situation to you, as in I'm 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 an amiable person generally. Um, so, generally speaking, I'm not the quickest at making decisions, particularly as I'm a a nine-one, so perfect, <laughs> correct, and right, and all that. So, I'm not the quickest at making decisions, but I think it will be imperative to make some changes quite quickly. Yeah. Um,
0: Do you know what I, I I my instant gut response to James's question here hmm. was. We advise quite a lot in leadership when people transition into new roles or take over a department or a new company and they come in, don't do anything too quickly. Mm. Don't do too much drastic stuff too early, right? You've got to get in, see what your remit is, see how the land lies, do an assessment and then make a decision. Do you know what? We'll stand by that. But there are certain situations where it requires drastic action. Yeah, You're both nodding at me, so I'm glad you're great. (laughs) And... And it's got to be bold and brave, but this, for me, in, in terms of James's question, would be would require drastic action. Yeah. Because when something is fractured, the fracture needs to be fixed. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. And the only way you're going to fix it is if is, is, it's the old Steve Jobs when he returns to Apple, fires everybody around the table or anybody who is not on the ship, mm. so he can push forward yeah. with his plan to not only save Apple but to turn it into eighty billion dollar global giant, right? Anybody who's not on that same wavelength, you're gone. Now, my instant, to answer James's question, Hmm. in this scenario, I would take drastic action. Yes. I would decide who is on the ship, who is not on the ship, or give people the opportunity to decide if they're on or off. Yeah. And you have to start triggering crowd contagion by galvanizing the party. That's first yeah. and foremost, because we can't do anything if we're not aligned in our own party. Yeah. Same as organizations, you're going nowhere if 50% of your staff don't believe in it. Yeah. And I'm not saying you come in and sack all the staff, because that's a different, yes. get the fish. But there's got to be some sort of gradual, you're on the ship or you're not, or yeah. we start recruiting for the right people hmm. who want to take this journey forward. Um, so I think, in, for James' question, if I was the PM in six months, I'd take some drastic action, because we've got to galvanise the party before we can execute upon anything.
1: Yeah. At the end of the day, there's not many people I know who have actually been on a sinking ship. Apart from me. That's it. <laughs> so what True do you story. Do? what do you do? Do you actually stand around discussing the size of the crack, and, uh, or do you actually... Start doing some fixing. You
0: take massive action, right? <clears throat> and at times, massive action is required. If you're yeah. a leader listening to this, if you're taking over a, a, a troubled team, if you're a, even if you've just taken over a, a team at the mid level in an organization, and they're split and there's politics, right? Sometimes, you know what? I interviewed Lee Radford, who's the coach of Hull FC rugby league team. Mm-hmm. He took over the team. I think it was around four or five years ago they were fractured. The club was fractured. He took massive action. He got rid of a load of the playing squad. He signed other players and he did. He took massive action. He changed the coaching staff, right? There was a period of struggle for probably 18 months. And then after that, they won back-to-back Challenge Cups at Wembley. Sometimes you need to take massive action. And I think, to answer James's question, I would do that. I would almost, I would retain and keep and get, the people who were in the tent, even more in the tent, Mm. and people who weren't, unfortunately, there'd have to be a few casualties Mm. and we'd have to rebuild because once we've got a galvanized group of people, then we can start making change. What we're trying to do in this country at the minute is make massive decisions and execute massive change and nobody, and literally nobody is on the same side. Mm. We are completely fractured and look at where it's getting us. No way. Exactly. Dave, thoughts? Are you staying out of this one because of the emotion? Dave likes his morning Brexit talks with us, So it's not more. No, it's not really a talk, is it, Spence? It's more of a, an offload a for, the, for the first twenty minutes. Dave, go.
2: Yeah, well, I was thinking wall blindfolds and a high caliber rifle, but um, <laughs> I think you probably put it a lot more eloquently than I do. Um, yeah, I think there's absolutely a case for some drastic action. I do, but one of one of my favourite quotes from Simon Sinek is, "When when you work with people who believe what you believe, they will give their blood, sweat, and tears." And that's just not happening at the moment. And politics is probably one of the most key areas in our entire world where this needs to be the case. And it's not.
0: Yeah. There is nothing more powerful than a decided mind. Right. And at the minute, we as a country, as a a party, as a whole, we do not have a decided mind. Right. The complete... Lack of action, the inaction is crucifying us. And it's the same in business. So, in summary, because I want two more questions to get through to James's question. And if I look at it from the the politics perspective, from the business perspective, right? You know, what would we do? What would I do? I'd take massive action. I would. It'd be one of the occasions where I would. And the first part of call is to galvanize the team. You have to have the people in the party or in the team in the 10, or at least the majority. At least 70, 80%, because the, the majority will always outweigh the minority in crowd contagion. If you've got a 50-50 split, which it seems like we've got at the minute, or a 60-40, it doesn't work. So you would have to correct that, as drastic as that may be. Then you can start by making some decisions around changes in execution, but at least you've got the majority of people behind you. Right. Next question comes from... Christina Colmer-McHugh, who is the co-founder and director of MoodBeam, wonderful innovative companies, MoodBeam, who are doing great things in the mental health space. And I'd recommend anybody listening to this podcast, check them out. We're going to partner them very soon on the product as well. Right, Christina asks, train people well enough so they can leave, treat them well enough so they don't want to. Richard Branson's quote, do you agree? That was a question. 100% yes. And again, one hundred percent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess you know what. It's it's, it's, an, it's a famous quote. It's a great quote, Christina. And I think Richard Branson's point on that is we have got to stop as organisations being frightened of losing our staff because we do. We get so in the modern day workplace, employees have more choice than ever. Right? They have more choice than ever due to the the way of the world, the fact that we can work remotely for anybody anywhere. The evolution and and advancements in technology, you know, we can even start up a business in our bedroom with a credit card and a PC, right? And we're trading the very same day. So what, what people do is they become very reluctant to invest in people in case they leave and it's all a waste of time or in case they go to the competition or whatever it might be. When you also look at the, and we talk about this a lot, the average tenure in the modern day workplace of an employee is around three, three and a half mm. years. If it was only 10 years ago, that was seven years, right? And it was only 10 years before that, it was jobs for life. It doesn't work like that anymore. So what you got to focus on for me is how can I get the best three to three and a half years out my employee? Well, invest in them and train them, and they're more likely to extend that stay. Mm. number one. It, but, the, but it's not jobs for life. People are going to leave, right? So- The 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 great question of what if I invest in my people and they leave, but what if you don't and they stay? Right? Mm. Which which is the you know, which is the worst situation to be in? So I think we've got to it's a great question. Yes, Christina, we fundamentally back it. Of course we would, but We also delivered a session yesterday to a bunch of HR directors. And in the top three contributing factors to employee engagement was training and development. This comes from people on the ground. They they value three things. Leadership, right? They wanted great leadership and great relationships with their managers. Number two, they wanted reward and recognition in the workplace. Number three, they wanted training and development. It is in the top three, Hmm requirements or needs for employees out there, why they would be engaged and why they'd go above and beyond and stay in the business if they feel invested in. And that's why you should do it. Go for it.
2: Uh, I think, I think uh, the, the very heart of that question, the very fundamental question in all of that is, is it right or is it wrong to employ, empower people? Everybody would say, of course it's right. We should empower people. So why do we see on a daily basis that businesses out there across all industries and not empowering their people exactly and i think that's the answer to that is and I, i've had this
1: discussion with a a, di- a company director pretty recently um why should we invest waste money on people who are gonna shaft us anyway His very words <laughs> yeah. His very words they're gonna the only definite thing the only thing you can rely on is your employees are going to shaft you and i thought Probably will for you yeah, because I, you're a bit of a chopper. He's created his, create his own monster. <laughs> Do, you know right? yeah. Do you know what, Spence? Do you know what, Spence? You're absolutely
0: right. The, the response to that should be right. Companies and cultures are a direct reflection of the leaders, yeah, of, of the of the personalities, absolutely. the characteristics. Yeah and the values and beliefs of the leaders, right? Yeah. The reality is, is you are right because he is right because they're probably going to shaft you because to use Spencer Locker's words, you're a chopper, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Now, yeah, and this is where it comes down. We yeah. deliver leadership training and uh, we're successful in it because it is the number one driving force behind everything, Certainly. right? So you don't invest in your people. You'll be skeptical. You'll be pessimistic. You'll be mistrusting and misguiding and you will get exactly the same back
1: yeah. and they will probably shaft you. And the thing is, when we start talking about things like um, I'll invest some people, I'll invest in my employees and they may leave. That's not the end of the story because when they go somewhere else, they get more experience, they get a different perspective, and then you know what? If you treat them right, they'll come back. Exactly. And they've got the, and, and somebody else has paid for that experience and that knowledge, and they've come back and said, "You know what? I went out there. I spent three years in the wilderness with other companies doing different things for different people. But you know what? You treated me right. Yeah. And I'm coming back, and you're going to get the benefit of my experience. Yeah. Job done.
0: Too so late, mate. I backfilled you. Right, so, so I, think, <laughs>
2: I, think, I think, Christine,
1: that's a yes. Yes,
0: yeah. Christina, we fully agree with you. Right, final question, because we've got 60 seconds left, gents, which Ooh. is from our very own Spencer Locker. Who? Spencer, what are you doing Put, submitting questions to your own podcast? Anyway, Spencer says, how do you deal with a boss, which I think is aimed at me, who suffers from misophonia yeah, or suffers from... Um, What's the word? A phobia of people eating crisps, apples, celery sticks, or of, anything loudly.
1: Yeah, you just can't deal with people masticating, can you? <laughs>
0: well, I'm glad you said that right. <laughs> right. Listen, I've got 20 seconds left, so you're not even going to answer it. I'm going to answer it. Noisy eaters. Stop bloody eating noisy, right? Ear defenders. Yeah. Yeah. They've bought the me. Forward. They've bought me ear defenders. It don't work. Chew your food in a humane manner. <laughs> Right? Instead of like a badger eating a pack of crisps through a tennis racket.
1: Or a lizard eating popcorn. No, don't even go there. Right. (laughs) Gents,
0: thank you very much for for participating. Hopefully that's That's answered people's questions. Enjoyed that. Listen, we'll do this at the end of every week. Submit your questions to us and thank you. And that's the end of another T2 Hubcast. Cheers. See you soon.
1: The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started.